Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 12, Episode 21. This is Writing Excuses, Narrative Bumper Pool with Bill Fawcett and Carrie Patel. Fifteen minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. And with us we have Carrie Patel and Bill Fawcett. Say hello. 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 Great to be here. Awesome. You can probably tell which is which from their voices, but uh, we'll, give, we'll give them a second. <laughs> uh, Carrie, start with you. Tell us about yourself. So, my name is Carrie Patel. I am a narrative designer and writer at Obsidian Entertainment, which is a game development studio. Um, We're known primarily for our RPGs, and most recently, I worked on Pillars of Eternity, which is an old-school-style, top-down, isometric tactical RPG, uh, and wrote for that, as well as the expansions, the White March Part 1 and 2. I'm also a novelist. Um, I've written The Buried Life and Cities and Thrones for Angry Robot, and I'm really excited to be here. Awesome. We're excited to have you. Bill, tell us about yourself. I'm a game designer. I founded Mayfair Games. I worked for TSR before that. I am an author. I do a lot of fiction books. I do a large number of nonfiction books about the great mistakes in history. And I'm also a book reviewer. And Yeah, uh, Bill is the kind whose resume outweighs all the rest of the three of us combined. So um, our resumes and, I guess, our actual... Uh, yeah, corporeal the, forms. The, exactly. He's done everything. This so, is a function of age, not accomplishment, my <laughs> friends. <laughs> so I'm very excited to have the two of you together because one thing that we uh, haven't had a lot of chance to talk about on the podcast before is writing for games and and specifically what it, what interests me about that is a form of interactive storytelling. Uh, when you are trying to write a story such that someone else will be able to tell part of it, whether that is a role-playing game or a computer game or, you know, whatever the, the medium may be. And uh, Howard, where, where did Narrative oh, Bumper Pool yeah. come from? Uh, Tracy Hickman, um, who, you know, worked for TSR. Uh, did, did you and Tracy work together at uh, TSR? No, I, okay. I knew Tracy. I worked um, for The Dragon. Um, anyway, he, uh, he was, wrote a book called XDM, Extreme Dungeon Mastery, where he talked about story design for dungeon masters. And the idea was, uh, if your players make decisions that take them so far outside of what you've written that you need to begin writing on the fly and creating more world as you go, it starts to drag. And so he encouraged, he encouraged us to build things using what he called narrative bumper pool, where you start at point A and you can decide either point B or point C. Um, and from those edges, you can't go further out. You get reflected You get reflected in. From the top down, it looks a little bit like a Christmas tree where you start at the star and there's you know, decision points as ornaments, uh, and, but you can't get off the tree. And when you get to the bottom, you are at one of several points along the bottom based on the decisions you've made. 
Uh, and the, the thing that fascinated me, the, I, I illustrated the book for Tracy, which is the whole reason I got to come to Gen Con back in 09. The thing that fascinated me about this is that uh, uh, you could look at those endings and write some very, very different endings, but uh, in terms of the narrative structure, they were, they were adjacent. Does, it, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a sense of adjacency, um, but it, didn't, it never felt like, like linear. It didn't feel like you were being railroaded through the story. And when I saw that from Tracy, I looked at some of the video games I'd been playing and realized, oh my gosh, Tracy has named a concept that, uh, that appears to already be in use. <laughs> well, let, let's ask. So, Carrie, you, you, you work in video games. Is this a concept that you use when you're structuring a story? Um, I haven't heard the concept by that name, but one thing we do have to be aware of is when we're presenting the player with a quest or a bit of content, and especially for an RPG where the player is expressing themselves by creating a character and playing the way they want, what are the things the player is reasonably going to want to do, and what does our game engine, what do our mechanics allow them to do? Um, and the kind of thing you described, Howard, in video games, the, uh, the complexity and the expense sort of gets multiplied because each of those endings is something that you have to script, you have to create content, write dialogue, maybe record dialogue, do cutscenes, and then also account for it in the reactivity that you know, comes along after the quest. So, you know, I, I think we... We look for ways to branch, and, but we look for ways to branch smartly and to, to intelligently and to funnel and to kind of get the player to a number of endpoints that will feel good, feel like we're anticipating the reasonable things they might want to do without just letting it go all over and the place. And when you say funnel, you're yes. talking about they've reached the edge case and you've, you're finding a way to bring them back in, back right. towards where you've coded something and scripted something and recorded mm-hmm. something that will describe what's going to happen next. Yes. It's limited choices. You limit your choices. This goes back back in the age of dinosaurs that I'm referring to in my career to the Chosen Path books that were effectively role-play games before we had computers. Mm-hmm. And you chose five or six different choices, but you constrain the choices. And you described it as a tree, which is really an illusion because what Carrie and I do is we create a vine and you are traveling along a parallel vine to reach a number of parallel but very closely related final end results, which allows us to manage graphics, text, and also the situation the character is in so that you can write the next one mm-hmm. because you've only got a limited number of opportunities. But you've got to pronounce enough choices that are distinct enough to feel like you have the illusion of making a wide range of choices, when in reality you're moving down a fairly narrow pathway of parallel things. That is fascinating to me. Um, you know, and and there there are elements of this kind of storytelling that I know in the past I must have used because I've been you know the GM for my game group forever. Um, but apparently I wasn't using them well enough to to know what you're talking about. Uh, what what are some of the things then that people can do if they want to? start, you know, creating stories for games or, or, you know, for any kind of interactive format, what are some things they can do to, you know, to create that vine and, and to, to lead people that way while still giving players the choice? Perhaps the, the best insight, and I think Carrie uses this in some of what she's done that I've seen of some of these things, is 
that you can give choices that are very different as long as they end up eventually at similar results. You can go up the mountain, you can go under the, under the plateau, you can go in the cave, you can swim the river. All of you end up within a series of one valley that's on the far side. So you bring it back in. So if you're going to design a role play for your D&D group or you're doing a game or you're doing an interactive book or you're doing a LARP, mm-hmm. which is the same effect when, you, when I help work with one of those, you design it so that there are a wide range of choices that can have different interactions in them. I can have to deal with one thing here and one thing there, but when I get to the end, I'm basically yeah. in the same place. You know, what this is reminding me of more than anything else is actually some, some really good parenting advice that I got. I have six children one of the things I learned early on is that you don't present them with binary choices, you know? You don't say, do you want a sandwich? You say, do you want this sandwich cut into squares or triangles? And then the child doesn't really have the chance to say, no, I don't want a sandwich, I want spaghetti. Well, I didn't make spaghetti, you're getting a sandwich. I can cut it into really, really thin pieces and you can pretend it's spaghetti, <laughs> but I'm not going to. Squares or triangles. <laughs> And so just because of the kinds of decisions, you know, if you say, here, players, there's a city, do you want to go to it or not? And they say no, and then you're like, well, that F's up three weeks of work. What am I going to do now? Um, so, so, Carrie, what, what, what about you? What are, what are some of the things that you use to help provide both choice and direction at the same time? How do you compel them? Yeah, isn't that the question? <laughs> I, well, so I think one question you have to ask yourself at the beginning is, what are the verbs of my game? Like, what are the key ways that the player interacts with this game? Uh, do you explore? Do you shoot? Do you sneak? Do you talk your way through problems? And you try to design solutions that let the player experience a variety of those verbs, you know, in any given batch of content um, and, the, you know, that give the player uh, different ways to move through it using those core fundamental elements of your gameplay. Um, you know, and I, sometimes I think that, you know, when you're, when you're designing a game, as much as anything, you're designing sort of the world and the environment. Um, you're like you're working on the negative space as much as the, pos- as much as the positive space. And so you're saying, this is the world you exist in. These are the problems it has. These are the ways that you have to interact with it. And, you know, now we're just going to give you, we're going to give you different things to do. And, and it's up to you to sort of decide how you want to tackle them. So the secret is to equip your characters with enough to make or facilitate a range of choices. It's your vine with many roots. If you only give them one choice, shooting, it's a straight line and it's a shooter. And the only choices you have are what direction to shoot and where to move. Whereas you get a game like Carrie's or like, say, the old New World Zine games that we worked on. And in those games, you gave them seven or eight options of the kind of thing they could do, or four or five, depending on your graphics budget. And then you put the choices to let them use those in various ways that will, again, get them to that valley on the other Mm -hmm. side of the mountain. One of the things that I I think it's... It's important to recognize that if the character, if you go over the mountain and end up at the valley, go under the mountain, end up at the valley, go around the mountain, end up at the valley, uh, it's always the same valley, uh, the character will feel cheated unless they went around the mountain and they got boondoggle A. They go over the mountain, they get MacGuffin B. They go under the mountain, they get eaten by a Gru, and they show up dead in the valley as a ghost. Um, when you, when you, you define these points of confluence, 
not just as locations where story events will take place, but as locations where, based on how we got here, there can be, and I assume that in video games this is done just by, you know, uh, objects in the character database somewhere, uh, you know, what has the character become on the way here, and how is that going to inform this scene? Mm -hmm. And you pair that back to, again, I'm making assumptions, uh, as few lines of recorded dialogue as possible, because that's incredibly expensive, as few new pieces of art as possible, because that's really expensive. Well, and I, I think key to making all of those various choices work they're, if they're all going to end in the valley, then there needs to be, like Bill said, you have to compel them. There needs to be a compelling reason that they want to get to that valley. Because otherwise, well, why couldn't I choose to go somewhere other than the valley? You, you need to you know, be leading them along with some kind of cool carrot. A game that doesn't feel good, not like she does, but a game that doesn't feel good only lets you go to the valley because you're constrained to what you can get to next. And those old directed games, we're talking the 80s here now, mm -hmm. and when we were very, very limited. Um, those old directed games had a very artificial feel to them. And now to answer your question and how we do it on budget is if I go through the water, I get the blue armor with the special effect. Now, none of these special effects are important enough to affect the overall gameplay of the game. Just help me in individual encounters. If I go over to the mountain, I get the silver. If I went through the valley, I get the gold. And therefore, I reward them in different ways because, as Carrie knows, we want, we want to reward you whatever choice you make. We want to make it a positive experience to have reached this valley. We mm -hmm. want to have shown that you have moved ahead and benefited. Just like in a novel or in a story, you want the character to have progressed with each chapter. Hey, writers. Are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, we're going to pause right here. We actually are long past the point where we should have paused for our book of the week. Our book of the week this week is The Buried Life by Carrie Patel. Tell us about it. 
So The Buried Life is a murder mystery set in an underground city where the study of history is forbidden. It's gaslight, shadows, intrigue, and lots and lots of surprises. Um, It follows Inspector Malone, who is a detective uh, living and working in the city, and Jane Lynn, who is a maid who serves uh, many of the social and political elites of the city. And when some of these people start dying, Malone is investigating, and Jane is also trying to figure out uh, who's going to be next. She stumbles upon the scene of a murder and is uh, trying to survive kind of these dangerous political games that are unfolding around her. Awesome. That is The Buried Life by Carrie Patel. You can get it wherever fine books are sold. Awesome. Okay, now I want to talk about, and we only have a couple of minutes left, but one big thing for me uh, where I have seen games fall down in the past, and it's always kind of bothered me, uh, there is a difference between players having choices and players having choices that matter, you know? Um, And and there's been some video games and some kind of large-scale gaming events that I've been a part of where, yes, I was free to do whatever I wanted, but in the end, it, it didn't really affect anything. And we, and we get to the, the climax of the story, and it either feels like a railroad or it feels like some other character is the main character. How, how do you make, how do you, how do you give that sense of, of impact that the, the characters and the players are the ones who are really the heroes and the stars of the story? You have to, you have to build multiple rewards that read to the end. I can't... You feel constrained that you've been shoehorned into that situation because you were shoehorned. It was a single push. Mm -hmm. If there are 50 layers and 30 of them are needed to get to the end and succeed, but you have 50 options at it, and you can screw up 50 times and still succeed, and you can find all this, and you can become a character powerful enough to accomplish the goal, or you can put enough of the items together to build the device that banishes the demon, or whatever it is. If you do that with lots of little rewards, then you're never going to feel like I forced you to do it. You're going to feel like I rewarded you to do it, and it felt good, and you want to do it some more. And that's the difference. And it goes back all... The example I use is Sid Meier's Civilization game. Every action you take is rewarded eventually in that game. And Mm -hmm. a word appears about every minute and a half. And that's my ideal model. World of Warcraft started that way. It's drifted off. Mm -hmm. But it's my ideal model on an appealing game. And when Carrie does a game... You want to talk about rewarding your players? Sure. I mean, and I think one of the biggest rewards, which I think is maybe what you're talking about, is seeing your choices and your actions reflected and sort of shown back to you in the game that you're playing. Um, There's a a very interesting construct. I I think it's Ocean, and it's sort of um, the different reasons that, that, you know, the different kinds of satisfaction that people find. And one of these is in seeing their mark made somewhere. And mm-hmm. so when you're playing a game, you want to see your mark left in that world. Um, on a practical level, what this means is that you have to be very deliberate about the story you're building, the choices you're giving the player, uh, the promises you're making to the player, and how you're going to make good on those by giving the player um, different reactions or different paths at the end. Um, and I, you know, I think from a craft perspective... You know, you have to realize that not everything that is fun to read would be fun to play. Mm -hmm. Um, And so creating a story where it really is the player's actions that move the plot forward, where it's, you know, the player 
discovering things, the player conquering things, the player doing things, rather than just observing things, um, that's what's going to help a player feel like it is their presence and their action in the game that, that moves the story forward and that, that got them to the end. One of my favorite examples of this is there's a mechanic in uh, Witcher 3 where you can go to a location, you know, a ruined village, and fight monsters, and it's a terrible battle, and when it's over the people who used to live here come back and you have a location that now has a shop. It's now a place where you can get things that you didn't used to be able to get. And, okay, that's part of the reward. But for me, part of the reward was seeing Geralt stand there smiling and nodding as the villagers come back in and start rebuilding their homes. I got chills the first time it happened. Oh, my gosh, I'm, I can rebuild this world. Uh, and so, yeah, that reward... Making my mark. That's the whole reason I kept playing. Well, that and Gwent. Which is actually the downfall of massive multiplayer games because you can't make permanent changes in the world. And it's why they have such a turnover of players. And they have to emphasize the social because Mm -hmm. the actual questing in it is a ephemeral mayfly type activity. It's a loot quest. How many times have we killed the great elder dragon, you know, again? All right. So we're out of time, unfortunately. But uh, we have time just for a very quick bit of homework from Bill. All right. My next book is 101 Stumbles in the March of History, where I and a few of my friends like Harry Turtledove, Eric Flynn, Chuck Gannon, Mike Resnick, write about great mistakes and how it changed history that they did it wrong and then speculate what would the world be like if that mistake had not been made. Anything from Columbus's math error to... Stalin training the German army, which, by the way, he did. Mm-hmm. He provided what both a equipment idea. and places when the treaty prevented it, or Versailles prevented it. So I would encourage all of you to go out there and think of a mistake that's been made somewhere in history. I don't care if it's last month or Napoleon or Caesar, and how you would have prevented that mistake, and then think about what your life would be like today if it hadn't been made. Cool. All right, so lots of research and then some cool uh, stuff to do. This has been Writing Excuses. Thank you very much to Carrie and Bill. You're wonderful. Um, You are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.